0: The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Okay, thank you, Leanne and Andrew, for your work in reading uh, the passage this morning. If you all need to stand up, shake your legs out, do whatever you need, you can. Kids, we send you to go learn in Sunday school this morning. It is good to be with you all as we continue walking through our series on Ezra Nehemiah. My name is Andy. I am one of the elders and covenant partners here at Gospel City Church. Last week, uh, Kyle introduced us to the book of Ezra Nehemiah. It guided us through chapters one and two and uh, helped us to see that um, in the book of Ezra Nehemiah, we're looking at one story. That we should yearn for a new Jerusalem, seek renewal in our world today, and rest in knowing that only Christ can and will make all things new. And today, just as we read. um, We are in Ezra 3 through 6, and we chose to preach these four chapters uh, together, not because we're in a time crunch or because we are trying to get through the book quickly, but we truly believe that these four chapters uh, tell one story, one narrative, and it's all driving on the line of God's providence. It's God's purposeful sovereignty, God's purposeful power expressed and working in the world to bring about his desired end so that is the theme line that draws these four chapters together this story has uh, four movements or scenes or acts you know if it was a play there would be times when the curtain would stop and the characters would go off and they'd change the scene and then they'd come back And we're going to be looking at those four movements or those four scenes to help get a better idea of how God is working in this passage. The four movements are first, the temple foundation, second, present opposition, third, future opposition, and then fourth is the temple rebuilt If you're in the uh, GCC WhatsApp group, I sent out a uh, short outline uh, to help guide our time this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. God, I thank you for this word. God, I thank you that you are active and working in the world today, just as you were thousands of years ago for the people of Ezra and Nehemiah. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, God, that you would be honored and glorified, and that we as a church would be challenged and encouraged by the message this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, this Sunday, uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time just walking through the narrative, walking through the story and these four movements and as we're looking at the story um, we're going to zoom in at times and look at things which would have had um, a special uh, significance for the people of the time of the post exilic community or things that have a unique application or significance for us today. The first movement where we're gonna start is the Temple Foundation. We start with the children of Israel. They are back from Babylon. They are back in Jerusalem and Judah. And as we come to the start of chapter 3, we are met by Joshua and Zerubbabel, who together with their kinsmen are building this altar. They're building an altar to offer burnt offerings according to the law of Moses. And interestingly enough, the writer tells us that the people were putting up an altar for fear was on them the peoples of the land. That begs the question, well, what was there to be fearful of, right? Well, it had been a generation or so since the Israelites called Jerusalem home. There were actually Israelites who were left behind in Jerusalem and Judah during the exile, and they intermarried and adopted a mixed or syncretistic worship practices with the people of the land. And so there was uh, religious impurity that they were worried about. There was the uh, intermarriages that they were worried about. But also the people of the land uh, did not necessarily accept the fact that the Israelites had a rightful claim to come back to Jerusalem. The Israelites, therefore, had a concern for religious purity as the groups had fallen into syncretism and mixed beliefs. And additionally, the people who were currently inhabiting the land believed that the post-exilic Israelites had no legitimate claim on the land. For these reasons, Joshua, Zerubbabel, and the rest of the company, fresh out of exile, were living in some sense of fear of the people of the land. And as we go through, and especially into chapter 4, we'll see that this fear is validated. And this fear in the passage, it drives the people to build an altar to the God of Israel according to the law of Moses, according to the word of God. And from these actions, we learn two things about the post-exilic community. One is that when fear came upon them, they were driven to worship and that their practices for worship were driven by God's word, the law of Moses. Uh, Dean Ehrlich, author of *Now and Not Yet*, said this about the way that the post-exilic community worshipped: "Said readers of Ezra 3 learn from the example of the post-exilic community that true worship emerges from interaction with God's word, which tells people, which tells God's people who God is and what He has done and how they should respond." He goes on to add, "Fear, however, does not cripple, as seen in Ezra 3." It drove the post-exilic community to worship and entreat the Lord. So these are amazing points, is that fear drove them to worship, and their worship was done and guided by the word of God. As we continue reading through the beginning of chapter 3, you get the sense that worship through offering is what the community did. As they established their life in the new land, making offerings to the Lord was a natural part and a natural extension of how they established themselves in the land. It's quite remarkable that when faced with an onslaught of potential enemies and threat to life and limb in the new land, the reaction of the post-exilic community was to orientate their lives around worship and offerings to God. And I believe that that's a good point of reflection uh, for us this morning. When you and I are faced with fear, whether it's uh, fearful about the future, fearful about finances, future about big decisions, even more future about fear for a future about a diagnosis from the doctor, fear for future about health. How do we respond? How do you respond? How do I respond? Is our natural inclination, like the post-exilic community, to go to the word of God and worship, to take that fear to God? Another one of the practices which the post-exilic community observed was remembering of feasts and of celebrations. And there's one really important one that is mentioned here at the beginning of chapter 3, and that is the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, If you're like myself, who a few days ago was not uber familiar with the Feast of Booths, I can give you all a, a quick summary. But basically, in the Feast of Booths, the people of God lived in huts for weeks in order to remember their dependence on God and, their, and his sufficiency for their needs. The feast annually encouraged the Israelites to resist worry that the God who blessed them in the past could and would provide for them in the future. So they were reacting, reenacting the temporary living arrangement of the past Israelites and through that they were able to learn and apply the situation that to their situation that God takes care of his people so the people of God are fearful in the midst of a land that is new for many of them we have to remember that most of this post exilic community was born in exile they'd never set foot in Babylon and so they would never set foot in Jerusalem And so they begin to worship in accordance with God's word, and that leads them to the Feast of Booths. They're fearful, they're led to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and it's a celebration which allows people to remember and rehearse that God takes care of his people. And so as we consider the providence of God in the passage this morning, working all things together, I think there's an instance where we see God's providence caring for his people. As they come and they start setting up this altar in Jerusalem in the seventh month, what takes place in the seventh month? It's the Feast of Booths and God brings them there and they're able to rehearse how God was faithful and provided for past generations and remind themselves that God is a God who cares for his people. Well, in the midst of all of these offerings, then the author diverts our attention to the temple foundation. The writer says in verse 7 that the temple foundation had not yet been put down. And therefore, the people began making efforts to build the foundation, to secure the materials needed to build the foundation of the temple. One of the main Uh, One of the main things that we should focus on here, one of the main things that they needed, was the cedar trees of Lebanon. They were trying to source. And when we hear these cedar trees of Lebanon, it should almost be a direct hyperlink for us to 2 Kings 5 and 6, where we can read of Solomon building the temple. So this language of the cedar trees of Joppa, of Lebanon, this should immediately kind of help us to recall Solomon's original temple. And so as the temple is being rebuilt, there's language around the first temple, and the, 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 the temple of Solomon is likely in mind, of these, is in the mind of these people as they are beginning to build. As we move on, there's some passage of time from when the altar is built, it's in the first year in the seventh month, and then we move into the second year, uh, when Zerubbabel and Joshua begin the process of building the temple's foundation. They commission the Levites and a a host of other people to begin working on the temple foundation. We're not really given a ton of specifics, uh, but what we see is that the temple foundation was laid. It was successfully completed. And that's when things get very interesting here in chapter 3. There were two very distinct reactions to the temple foundation being built. The younger generation, the priests and the Levites, came in with music and songs according to the instructions of David the king, which we're going to break down in a few moments of the significance of that. But they came in giving songs and thanks to God. While the younger generation was praising and singing, the older generation was weeping. They were heartbroken over the new temple foundation, having seen Solomon's temple in all its glory. Now, there's a lot going on, and I want to unpack as much of this as we can. First, we have a reference to David as the king in Jerusalem around this idea of a house or the house of God and again that should be reminding us and pointing us back towards 2nd Samuel 7 where God makes a covenant with David to establish a house with his line his descendants ruling forever here we have people worshiping on the foundation of the temple in Jerusalem according to the worship method of David the King. Ulrich comments that worship style that, that that worship expressed hope for God to work out his redemptive plan through his chosen king in his chosen city. So the younger generation was. Hopeful. The younger generation was hopeful about what was going to happen here in Jerusalem. They were hopeful for the king who would come on the line of David. But the elders were sorrowful. As we consider the weeping of the older generation, I want to hold out one idea as to why they wept when they looked at the new foundation in comparison to the old temple which they had seen. In Ezekiel 10:18 and 11:23, we read that the presence or the glory of God was removed from the temple when Israel was judged and went into exile. So while the scale and grandeur of the new temple may not have compared to that of Solomon's temple, we must consider what the temple was. What was its purpose? The temple was a place where God's presence was meant to dwell with his people. While God is omnipresent and God does not dwell in houses made by human hands, the temple was meant to be a unique place where God dwelt with his people. So therefore, while the post exilic community was seeking to rebuild the temple of God, in actuality, what they were seeking was the presence of God with the presence of God gone from the temple and the foundations lacking in size and grandeur to that of Solomon's temple it was natural for the people who had seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory to weep. With the people's response to the temple foundation the first movement of our story this morning comes to a close. The second movement of our story this morning is present opposition. And this is where the author uses some interesting literary techniques in chapter four uh, to communicate some really important truths. And so the present opposition in chapter four is verses one to five, and then we'll skip six to 23. That's gonna be part of movement number three and look at number 24 as well. So movement to present opposition is from Ezra 4, 1 to 5, and 24. As we stated in the start of the story, the thing which drove the people of God to worship was fear of the people of the land. And in chapter 4, the people of the land validated the fear as they proved to be enemies of the temple rebuilding process. The people of the land in chapter 4 are labeled by the writer who is writing after all of these events have occurred. They're labeled as adversaries. And they come offering assistance in building the temple. And, you know, at first read, and when you're going through, you're like, oh, maybe this is nice. You know, they're going to shake hands and they're all going to work together and sing kumbaya at the end, and it's going to be great. It's not what happens, right? Zerubbabel declines the offer to help, which at first glance may seem odd. But we have to remember that the author is writing from the perspective that all of these events have already happened. He's already labeled them as adversaries, which should give us a hint as to why Zerubbabel declined their help. And then in verses 4 and 5, the people reveal their character when their help is denied. They go out and hire counselors. Um, i don't know about you but these are a pretty rubbish idea of counselors because their only job is to frustrate the work and to frustrate the advancement of the temple so these adversaries of the land hire someone whose entire job description is to frustrate these people so imagine i don't know how many of you like work on collaborative documents at work if you have google sheets or google documents every time you type a line the anonymous aardvark comes up and just deletes it. And then you type another line, deleted. That's, that's this person's entire job, is to frustrate your work. These were adversaries. And unfortunately, the frustration and fear of these counselors works. The adversaries of the people succeeded in stopping the work of the temple for the rest of King Cyrus's lifetime. At the end of verse five, and then looking forward into verse 24, we see that the rebuilding of the temple would not commence until the second year of the reign of King Darius, who was the next king after Cyrus. We'll explore this further in our fourth movement, but God does ultimately work through this adversity and opposition To bring about his purposes for these people. But as you noticed a moment ago, I skipped over verses 6 through to 23 when talking about the present opposition, and that's because verse 6 through 23, as I mentioned, they belong to our third movement. They were future to the time of Zerubbabel. So if we are thinking about the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua as they're building the temple, verses 6 through 23 are in the future, Um, a few decades later in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And this was a literary feature that the author of Ezra Nehemiah was using to show the scale of the opposition of the work. As we transition from movement two to three, Derek Kidner helps provide a summary explaining this section. He says, from this point onward, right to the end of Nehemiah, there is conflict. Nothing that is attempted for God will go unchallenged, and scarcely a tactic has been unexplored by the opposition. This chapter describes the opening of hostilities and the first long setback to the work. Without a foretaste of history to reveal the full seriousness of opposition, we should not properly appreciate the achievements recorded in the next two chapters, five and six. And that brings us to our third movement, future opposition. So the author is using a literary technique to show the power of the opposition against the post-exilic community. In movement to the opposition, it's present in our narrative with the time of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, Um, but the future one is in the time of Artaxerxes. They're not focused on opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, but to the rebuilding of the city walls and the city itself. And understanding the vastness of the opposition, both in force and scale and time, will prove to elevate our understanding of the providence and power of God to deliver his people from this opposition. In contrast to the opposition of the temple in verses 4 through to 5 and 23, this opposition is to the city of Jerusalem itself with specific references being made to the building of the walls. We are introduced in this section to a few different characters Rehum and Shimshai seem to be the main adversaries at this point who are writing a letter to Artaxerxes, And they are trying to trying to convince him that the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem would not be prudent, it is not be good, that he should stop it. And in political fashion, they say it's not going to be good for taxes and it's not going to be good for safety. Those are the two points which Rehom and Shimshai sent to Artaxerxes, and he's like, oh, that's good. We, we, we want our taxes, and we want to keep people safe, right? And so he agrees to this report made by Rehom and Shimshai and orders that the rebuilding be stopped in Ezra 4.21. He decrees that the work must be stopped. He does not want them to take haste in this. He wants them to go straight away, and they have the ability to use force, and seems like whatever means necessary to stop the people. As we're thinking through the line of God's providence, perhaps what's most important for us is the end of Ezra 4.21. So the beginning, he makes a decree to stop it, but for some reason, Artaxerxes, maybe it was his own pride, maybe it was him wanting to be in power and be able to give a decree. I think it was probably the providence of God. Um, But he gives this decree at the end. He says, we're going to decree that the work stops for now, but I can give a decree later and say that the work can resume. I think providence. God working through unlikely people to bring about his purposes. There was opposition but the stipulation was not permanent. There was, a, there was hope that in the future he could give a decree to allow the work to resume again. So even as the adversaries plotted against the people of God year upon year for decades, God's providence left the door open for the work of rebuilding the city to resume in the future with a decree of Artaxerxes. So why is this all included? Well, we were not present in the 500s and 400s BC in Judah and Jerusalem, so we don't tangibly know how the opposition felt. We don't know what it looked like, how it felt like, the, the strength of this opposition. And the writer therefore wanted to help the readers to fully appreciate the work that was being done by God And in order to do that, he had to show the full power of the opposition. This was not, you know, a professional team beating a junior varsity team. This was strong opposition that was going on. And the author wanted us to fully grasp what was happening here so we could fully grasp and appreciate the power of God and his work here. And that brings us to our final movement for the morning, and that is the temple rebuilt. At the start of this final movement in chapter 5, God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to prophesy to the Jews who were in Jerusalem. The writer emphasizes that these prophets are in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And with the support of the prophets, Zerubbabel and Joshua resumed their efforts to rebuild the temple. As this was occurring, a governor, Tetanai, questioned the identity of them, questioned the authority that they had to build, and eventually ends up writing a letter to Darius. But again, as we're considering the line of God's providence, In this passage perhaps the pinnacle of that is Ezra 5 5 says but the eyes of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it let us consider what this does not say it does not say that God just line clear removed all the opposition He didn't just remove all the adversaries. Rather, he was with them. His eyes were on them. And in his providence, he allowed the work to continue. So the same governor, Tetanai, he writes a letter to Darius. He gives him a report of what he saw the Jews doing, what they said. And he asks for Darius to make a decree to search for this original Decree from Cyrus. And there's one thing that I want to focus on here for a moment, and that is verses 5 11 through to 12, where we see what the Jews' response to Tetanai was. It says, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people to Babylon. I think this is a reminder for us of knowing our history, knowing our testimony, being able to rehearse and share it, uh, both corporately and individually, and not being ashamed of that. When they were fearful of the people of the land, it could have been easy right, to say, Who's authority no, here? No, we're not building anything. We're not building a temple. We're just building houses, right? But no, they, they claim God. They know their history. They know their testimony. They know their story, and they're able to rehearse it and share it. Well, upon receiving the letter, Darius makes a decree to search for the, the letter from Cyrus, and the scroll is found and sure enough, it corroborates the original story, corroborates what Kyle walked us through last week with Ezra 1 and 2, that, the, that Cyrus sent them to build the temple. Darius then not only decrees the rebuilding, that it shall continue, but moreover, he funds the project from the royal treasury. He offers anything they need, it seems like animals for burnt offerings. He offers anything else what the priests might need. He was going to provide this all. Not only that, but he was going to pretty vulgarly punish anyone who tried to stop it. I'm not exactly sure how to picture um, a house being turned into a dunghill, uh, but it wasn't pleasant. That's not what you want to come home to this afternoon, right? And so Darius, with the power of the the seal of the king and his royal army and everything, he was protecting and funding this work. God's using unlikely sources in his providence to fund and protect the building of the temple. So with the resources, with prophets Haggai and Zechariah ministering to them with the word of God, and with God seeing them, the elders of the Jews built with great success and finished building the temple, finished building the house of God. And the people rejoice. The priests, Levites, and all the returned exiles joyfully celebrated and dedicated the house of God. At the dedication, the people offered sin offerings. They established the Priests to serve the house of God according to the law of Moses. They celebrated Passover, and they invited anyone from the land who was willing to separate themselves from the unclean worship of the land to join them. And the fourth movement, a lot's going on. God's hand was at work to bring about his purposes. A letter was sent to Darius Who found the original decree of Cyrus, funded the rebuilding of the temple. And then look at verse 22 of chapter 6. The thing which is said to bring the people joy is that the heart of the king of Assyria was turned towards them. They're like, wait, Assyria? I thought we were in Persia, I thought we were dealing with a different kingdom here. Well, this statement is remarkable about the nature to which God's providence worked to bring about the rebuilding of the temple against such opposition. The reference to Assyria uh, was likely a reference to the kingdom which took the the, uh, northern tribes into exile, the Assyrians. The king of Assyria is an allusion back to the nation which brought the northern kingdom into captivity generations before, and here the people are celebrating how God worked through unlikely people, namely foreign kings, to bring about the building of his temple. I believe there's an application which we can draw from this for our own life. Uh, Step by step in this story, as the people sought to build the temple, they sought to establish the place where God would dwell with man, they faced opposition. They faced hardship. I perhaps uh, cheerfully or optimistically um, identified our main line through the passage as God's providence. Um, Maybe if I was being pessimistic this week, I would have said the main line is hardship and opposition. I think both of them are equally there in driving this narrative. Ulrich summarizes the idea by saying this. The unified witness of these passages is that serving God rarely seems to be easy. Some form of resistance within or beyond God's people inevitably accompanies efforts at doing God's will. And these challenges can even frustrate the most pious of saints, not to mention slow a ministry or even shut it down. God's people are not immune to hardship and disappointment. And this idea is not confined to Ezra Nehemiah. Many New Testament letters and Acts share the theme that just because you're doing the right thing, just because you're doing the thing which is in God's will for you, doesn't mean that persecution and opposition won't come. Jesus told us a servant is no greater than their master, and if the world hated him, they would hate us as well. Opposition is a reality in the Christian life. But there's good news for us, right? Christ faced the ultimate opposition on our behalf. He defeated sin and death taking on the penalty that we deserve. We deserved, as children of wrath, opposition from God. But because Christ took on that penalty, we are brought near to him. Christ said, therefore, that we should expect persecution, expect opposition in this life. But when we face them, we are able to face them in the presence of our Savior. As the post-exilic community faced these oppositions and hardships, they sought to rebuild the temple, which was the place where God's presence was meant to dwell. But as we close the book this morning on Ezra 6, there's no indication that the presence of God was back in the temple dwelling with them. GCC the good news for us is that as we face persecution and opposition in this world We face them in the presence of the living God As we studied at the close of Matthew two weeks ago Everywhere we go in the Christian life Christ is with us always to the end of the age Through the Holy Spirit God dwells with us. We are temples of the living God And when we fully grasp that presence of God dwelling with us and in us, as followers of Him, we would be able to withstand all sorts of opposition and hardship that we may face in this life. Well, if you're in this room and you are not a follower of Christ, let me share this with you. He welcomes you with open arms. He calls you to himself to find new life. Trust in his perfect life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing else you need to do to appease him. There's nothing else you need to do to be brought close, to be drawn into his presence. Simply believe in the work which he already completed on your behalf. Well, when we understand God's presence is with us through any and all opposition, then we can truly yearn for a new Jerusalem, seek to renew our world today, and rest knowing that only Christ can and will make all things new. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that though we may face opposition in this world, you are with us to comfort us, to guide us, to walk us through the challenging times. I thank you for our church community, our brothers and sisters who you give us as well. I pray that you would be with us as we go out this week to serve and seek renewal in the city. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.